Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Denise back from The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, April 30th. Today, how the anti-vax movement brought back measles racing for more Russian interference in U.S. elections, and a historic abdication in Japan. As of Monday, the CDC was reporting that there have been at least 704 measles cases for this year, for 2019. Lena Sun is a health reporter for The Post. That is a lot. That is a record. It's the highest number in 25 years, and it's the largest number since measles was eliminated in the year 2000. In a matter of weeks, the spread of measles in the U.S. has dramatically increased, and it's become a public health crisis. Much of why that's happening is because of the anti-vax movement. Disinformation and fake claims have scared people off from vaccinating their families. Now, Lena says that the outbreak could spread even further. Most of the surge in cases comes from three large outbreaks. There's one in Rockland County, suburb of New York. The biggest one is in New York City, in Brooklyn. And then the one that was just declared over was the one in the Pacific Northwest in Washington State, 72 cases, and it was declared over Monday. What are some of the measures that public health officials are taking to coax people to get vaccinated or in some cases basically force people to get vaccinated? In New York City, they have been trying lots of things. Many of the less coercive things did not work. And New York City put in place a mandatory vaccination order that people living in certain zip codes had to be vaccinated. Anybody who lived or worked in those zip codes had to be vaccinated. And if they were not, they could face a civil summons of $1,000. And if they didn't show up for the hearing for those summonses, face a penalty of $2,000. In Rockland County, they have also put in place a ban on going to public areas. So these are all measures that are rare and that haven't been used before. But the law gives public health officials this authority to protect the public in cases of these infectious disease outbreaks. You say that measles was effectively eliminated from the U.S. in the year 2000, and now it's back. Why is that happening? I think there are a couple of reasons. One is measles is a vaccine-preventable disease. The vaccine to protect you against measles, the MMR vaccine, is 97% effective when you take the recommended two doses. In 1963, the vaccine was introduced, and if you look at a graph of measles cases back then versus after the introduction of the vaccine, it plummeted. So in 2000, basically, there was no person-to-person transmission of measles in the United States. That's why it was eliminated. There's still measles outbreaks in other parts of the world. In fact, 
tons of outbreaks. The first three months of this year, the WHO said that there are 300% more measles cases in the first three months than there were for the same period in 2018. You have measles across Europe, in the Middle East, Asia, Africa. Madagascar has already had 1,200 deaths, deaths from measles. Oh, my gosh. So what happens is, even though most Americans are vaccinated and the vaccination rate overall in the country is high, when you have communities or clusters of people who don't get vaccinated, then you're not protected. And because measles is such an exquisitely contagious disease, in order for people to be protected, you need to have near-perfect levels of vaccination in the community. 93 to 95% of people have to be vaccinated to protect the babies, the pregnant moms, the people with weakened immune systems who cannot get vaccinated and rely on this thing called herd immunity or community immunity for protection. So when somebody from the United States who's not vaccinated travels to Israel or the Ukraine or the Philippines all of which are having huge measles outbreaks, then comes back infected to their little community where people don't have enough vaccination, boom, it spreads. I'll give you an example. If you are an infected person and on average you're in a community where there's not protection, you will infect 12 to 18 people. That's how infectious it is. By comparison, Ebola, which is much more dangerous, and is transmitted through bodily fluid, you only infect one or two people. Wow. So that even measles obviously is is less of a dramatically deadly disease than Ebola, but that it spreads a lot more quickly and a lot more effectively. And that's than... why everybody is so freaked out by measles. And that's why it's a reportable disease. Anytime there's a measles case, officials have to report it. I also wonder if this is an issue of the fact that doctors in the U.S. haven't seen this for so long, that it might not be, you know, someone comes in showing symptoms of measles, that it might not be the first thing on their minds of, of what the culprit could be. Exactly. So because vaccines are a victim of their own success, you eliminate measles. So parents are not familiar with measles and clinicians of a certain age don't know what to look for. You know, the symptoms of measles, runny nose, fever, are often mistaken for colds or flu. And for the four days before you get that telltale red rash, you are contagious. And you are contagious for four days afterwards. So you may be completely unaware that you are sick with measles. In one case, a man traveled from Brooklyn to the Michigan area. And in the Detroit area, he infected up to 43 people, just this one man. 43 people from one person? Yes. Obviously, this is something that public health officials have been jumping on. What are they doing? And is that making a difference? The problem with measles, more so than any other infectious disease outbreak, is that it is so quickly spread and it is so contagious. So in order to get to the bottom of it, you have to figure out what is your overall pool of susceptible people, the vulnerable population. And then each person who has a confirmed case, you have to go interview them, find out where they've been, and then Go find out all the other people who were in that same space. Well, can you imagine how much work that is if it was a basketball game or the airport or Costco or a church or school? 
Washington State, which just declared their outbreak over, spent over 1,900 man hours. The cost to the state was almost $2 million, and they had 58 locations where there was exposure. In New York, the difficulty has been there's not been just one patient zero. They've had multiple patient zeros coming in, infecting. So they call these things chains of transmission. I infect you to other people, so I may be one chain of transmission. Joe Blow is another chain of transmission. I think early on in New York, they had 52 different chains of transmission, and I don't know how many are still active. I think many are still active, and you know they're still active because case counts are still going up. But what we've seen in a lot of these cases is that this isn't just an issue of making people aware that they're not vaccinated or making people aware that they are at risk. It's that in a lot of places, people are resistant to getting vaccinated, that they think that there is something something wrong with vaccines. And so all of the efforts that public health officials are taking, is that helping to get a lot, a lot more people vaccinated? Or are there still pockets of people who, despite seeing this outbreak, are choosing not to get vaccinated? Some people because of the spread of anti-vaccine information over decades, have come to believe that the dangers of the disease are not as bad as getting the vaccine. Part of it is because we don't have measles around anymore. Part of it is because this misinformation, these false claims, have spread so rapidly. And they have been especially dominant in certain kinds of communities where that belief is strong, so their people are hesitant or refuse to vaccinate. In New York City, in this ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, the city health officials have said repeatedly that misinformation and lies are one reason why people are refusing. And they're refusing to cooperate with the city health officials. So they're not telling them the truth about measles cases in the family. If the health officials don't know what the X is for the total population, it is really hard to get to the bottom of this. Do you think that seeing such a remarkable number of measles cases in the U.S. will wake some people up and say, okay, well, maybe the risk at this point of getting measles is actually greater than whatever I think the risk is of getting vaccinated. There are some public health experts who say it will take a child dying, reports of children dying, for people to really realize how dangerous measles is. Back in the day, before the vaccine was available, 400 to 500 people died every year, many of them children. This is particularly dangerous for children younger than five. Anybody can get measles, but children under the age of five are particularly vulnerable. Of the cases that have been reported this year, I think 66 people have been hospitalized and about 20 have been in intensive care. Do you think that we have seen the peak of these outbreaks? I think that the New York outbreak is not over. I don't think that they've been able to get a good handle on it, especially at the rate that cases are increasing. 33 new cases in the last five days. Unless communities respond and realize that they need to get their kids vaccinated, we're going to see more of these outbreaks. That's what people think, because there are outbreaks going on around the world. And you know, the virus is only one plane ride away. 
Lena Sun is a health reporter for The Post. U.S. intelligence agencies are already seeing warning signs of Russian interference ahead of the 2020 elections. We saw some efforts like this around the midterms, nothing like we saw in 2016. But there's every expectation, at least, that in 2020, you're going to see some kind of similar effort because it was so successful in 2016. I'm Shane Harris, and I cover intelligence and national security for The Post. And Shane says that national security and intelligence agencies are preparing for another battle in what special counsel Robert Mueller called information warfare. U.S. government now knows who those people are. They know how they did it. They kind of forensically went back and reconstructed the crime. That helps them then look forward to 2020 and say, okay, we know the kind of bad guy behavior that we should be watching out for. And have they started to see any signs of that kind of activity or bad guy behavior so far? Not on the scale that we saw in 2016, at least not that they're confirming publicly yet. What we have seen, though, is a number of officials, most recently the FBI director, Chris Wray, come out and give lots of warning and indications that we see this kind of activity ramping back up again. Foreign influence, malign foreign influence, we usually use to describe the fairly aggressive campaign that we saw in 2016 and that's described in the special counsel's report and that has continued pretty much unabated. So what kinds of preventive measures are intelligence agencies and national security agencies taking if they're expecting that? One of the big things that they're doing is these intelligence agencies and primarily really the Homeland Security Department and to some degree the FBI, which operate domestically in the U.S., are reaching out to social media companies, for one, telling them when they see bad stuff coming their way or they're spotting something that they think could be problematic or even, you know, warning them about larger trends of the kinds of things that they might be expected to see. It's A lot of times it's, it's up to the social media company, of course, to police their own networks. The DHS also has reached out to all 50 states and is making contact with state and local election officials to try and educate them about the risks posed by hackers to, for instance, manipulating voter rolls, which is something that we saw happen in 2016, and in the more extreme case, trying to make sure that their actual voting systems, the electronic ballot booths that people use, are up to date and as secure as they possibly can be. And I think there's even an effort to try and get some of these states to move back to paper ballots or at least voting machines with paper receipts so there's some, some kind of a record. So what you're seeing is a lot of outreach, getting to the people who need to know how to defend themselves, how to be on guard, and trying to help them do that. But ultimately, you know, social media companies, they are privately owned and operated. That's their business. Elections are administered by states and localities. That's some, to some degree their business. So you can see the limits of what the federal government can actually do here. They're, they're pretty significant barriers to their just direct intervention in trying to force new security procedures onto companies and state and local governments. So given those limits, do you think that what – the government is doing is enough to stop this from happening again? Or is there a legitimate concern that even though we're much more aware of these risks now than we were in 2015 and 2016, that that could still happen again? The fear among U.S. officials that we've spoken to is on the one hand, they're doing a lot more than they were doing in 2015 and 2016. As you said, they've learned a lot. The problem is that the White House is not really fully on board with this. So you still have the president being both in private and in public, 
very skeptical that the Russian intervention in 2016 was all that effective, uh, dismissing it, downplaying it, conflating the uh, Russian efforts to somehow assist him in the election, which intelligence officials say did happen, with the overall threat from Russia to disrupt our elections. The president loves to say in private briefings with his aides, whenever this comes up, the Russians didn't tr change one single vote with what they did. Well, no one has ever suggested that they did. And there's been no evidence collected about whether they did. But the president kind of recoils against this. And whenever they bring up election security, he seems to indicate that his officials or his aides are somehow trying to say that his election was illegitimate. No one is saying that. Now, the government can operate to some degree on its own, which is a little bit of a scary thought to think about, you know, these whole apparatuses of government kind of operating without clear direction from the president. But they have said to us, these officials, that they wish that the president would publicly come out and educate the American people about this. Tell them election interference is a real thing. Tell them it could happen again in 2020 like it did in 2016. That would help galvanize public awareness. And it would also help give a lot more continuity to what the government is doing because you know, ultimately the president is the CEO of the government. This is an apparatus that he runs. And when he's not really on board with the premise of what these agencies are trying to do, that makes it more difficult in their view to carry out that security mission. So even though these agencies can take preventive measures kind of behind the scenes, it would make a difference whether or not the president and the White House were making a big deal about this and making a big deal about making the 2020 election interference-proof, Russia-proof. I think it would make a big difference. I mean, one analogy I've used before that I think is, helps to clarify this is imagine if after the 9-11 attacks, President George W. Bush had come out publicly and said, I'm not so sure al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden are the ones who attacked us. And let's just imagine the government still went about trying to protect aviation and do counterterrorism missions and go to Afghanistan and get bad guys. But if the president were sort of constantly second-guessing that effort and trying to downplay the risk of terrorism, just imagine how different the environment would have felt and how uncoordinated that response may have been. Putting aside whatever you know, overreach some people may have think happened in the name of the so-called war on terror, the fact is you had the entire government from the top to bottom aligned against a very clear identified threat that exploited a vulnerability in our security, just like what happened in 2016 with the election. But now you don't have that coordinated response. Well, it also feels like that's the part that President Trump would have the most power to influence, yeah, right? Absolutely. Like these agencies are going to do what they're going to do behind the scenes to protect Americans in the election system. But if you had the president coming out and saying like there actually will be people on social media who are not who they say they are, who are putting out false narratives and false ideas, that would help raise awareness among the people who arguably like pay attention to him the most. Absolutely. I mean, any president, particularly this president who has such a loyal following on social media, has the ability to use that bully pulpit to raise any issue from obscurity to absolute prominence, you know, in an instant. And he could do more, I would think, than any single individual to come out and talk about this. He's the head of the government. He's been through an election. He's privy to all of the best intelligence. I mean, he absolutely knows what Russia did. He's been briefed on it many, many times. If he were willing to come out and, frankly, I think, put his insecurity and his pride to the side about 2016, he would go a long way to educating people about what every intelligence official in his government who he appointed is on record saying is a clear and present danger to democracy. What is your advice to regular people who are concerned about this? 
Number one, don't believe everything you see on social media, right? We always tell people, don't, really, don't always believe everything you see in the news. Well, don't believe everything you see on social media either. And be aware that particularly this kind of viral content that you're seeing on Facebook, on Twitter, and other platforms, YouTube, that looks like it's designed to provoke a response, right? It is designed to provoke a response and be suspicious of it and be cautious about the response you might be having to it and understand that somebody may be putting that out there in order to try to manipulate you. The second thing is, you know, people should be aware of the kinds of voting systems that are being used in their states. If you live in one of the states that has electronic balloting, Ask for a paper receipt. Ask to take it with you. I mean, this is something that for years, election security experts have been telling people, try to get a paper backup. But people need to be aware of the fact that when they go into that voting booth, it's not just the, the ballot that they're checking. There are all kinds of other systems and roles in place and databases. And being more educated about the vulnerabilities that those pose, I think, would give people at least some better sense of what we're up against when they go in on election day. Thank you so much, Shane. You're welcome. Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security for The Post. And now, one more thing. On Tuesday, Japanese Emperor Akihito formally abdicated. Three hundred dignitaries were present for the abdication ceremony, including Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and the royal family. It was in the imperial palace in the pine chamber, which is a very simple room of polished wooden pine floor. The emperor walks in very slowly with his wife just behind him, and then Two of the sacred treasures of Japan were brought in. That's a sacred sword and a sacred jewel. The sword symbolizes valor, the jewel symbolizes benevolence. And they were in cases. Commoners, ordinary people aren't even allowed to see them. So there are not even any drawings or photographs of these sacred treasures. I'm Simon Denyer. I'm the Washington Post Bureau Chief for Japan and the Koreas. No emperor has abdicated for just over 200 years, so it's something of a break from tradition for Akihito to stand down in favour of his son. But he has, in a sense, broken tradition throughout his reign. Before him, emperors were very distant from the people. They would speak on raised platforms to thousands of people. He's done the opposite. He's actually gone out there and he's spoken to people in all kinds of situations, in old people's homes, spoken to the disabled. He's gone into elementary schools. And particularly, he's gone around giving condolences to disaster victims, such as the earthquakes and tsunamis that have hit Japan during his reign. He also married a commoner, and, and she's been at his side and instrumental in Empress Mashiko. She's been instrumental in kind of portraying and, and developing this more human role. Before, the emperor was seen as a divine being, a descendant of the sun goddess. But Akihito's father, Hirohito, had to renounce that divinity. The Americans actually ordered him to do that after the Second World War. So there has been a kind of coming down to earth to some degree to keep the family 
relevant and have it give it some meaning in modern Japan. On Wednesday, Crown Prince Naruhito, as he is now, will take over as the new emperor. And then he will make a short speech. He probably won't say very much,、um, but it will be scrutinized in great detail and it'll be on the front page of all the newspapers the following day, which will open the new era, the Reiwa era, as it, as it will be called, the era of the new emperor. And we'll be looking for clues as to how he sees his reign going forward. Simon Denyer is the Post's bureau chief for Japan and the Koreas. That's it for today's Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Check out our website, postreports.com, to learn more about the stories featured in today's show and to catch up on recent episodes of the podcast. Post Reports is always worth a binge listen. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G R A M M A R L Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done.